All right, 10.04. Welcome, everybody. I see so many new faces. I wonder if that had something to do with Robert Ori last week. And I'm and I'm so happy. So I, I actually wanted to start. I got a lot of stuff to talk about. But I wanted to start with downloading about Robert. And I hope everybody enjoyed that last week. Certainly the feedback I got was pretty was pretty amazing. Robert, true to form, thanked me afterwards for being on the show. Stedman, very complimentary, thanked us. Um, she who we will not name actually opened the door in the background. And I don't mean that in a Voldemort type. I mean a good way. <laughs> I just don't want to overstep my bounds. But um, how wonderful was that? And you know what? I was talking to someone I think who's on here actually this week. And she said, you know, a lot of the stuff he was talking about, you talk about. And a lot of stuff he was saying, you've said, did you guys coordinate that? And I'm like, no, of course not. I would never think that I am at a level of a Robert Ory, but I am at a level of knowing what works and doesn't work, just like he does, just like everybody. Because what I'm talking about in terms of approach, life outlook, my practice, our lives, is a are universal truths that have been applied consistently by, I suspect if we saw Socrates's, you know, chop wood, carry water version, it would have many of the same issues, right? And so as you look at Dale Carnegie in the 30s and Tony Robbins and Robert Ory, and, and I'm not saying I'm like I'm anywhere like them, but I do espouse, uh, espouse the same issues because that idea of greatness not being for the chosen few, but really for the few that choose to do what it takes to be great is a universal thing. And, you know, I go back to Chop Wood because the book is Chop Wood, Carry Water, falling in love with the process of becoming great. And it really is true where they talk about greatness or excellence in anything is about consistently applying hard work, which is dirty, not sexy, boring. And it is a challenge to continue to do that. Right. And so I experienced falling off the truck this week, and I will share with you guys. And I want to say that knowing that I was coming on on Friday helped me get up and get back on the truck. Any of y'all fall off the back of the truck before? Well, Mike, you don't have cash flow problems. You don't have emotional issues. You don't have mental. You do a show on Fridays at 10. You must be completely normal all the time. So this week, started looking at Instagram. Started, I met uh, a, a couple of people that were, seemed like they had the world in their fingertips. 
I forget exactly what it was that was the trigger specifically, but I realized that I was triggered. And then I did what I think a lot of us do when we get triggered, right? I, I forget that I tell people there's always somebody prettier, stronger, younger, better, richer, faster. Seem like they got their shit together better. And then you start spinning. And I talked to Gina about this this morning. And, and I said, well, what I'm doing isn't working. The routine, I need to find a shortcut. I need to find the magic pill, the magic diet, the magic case. I got to change up everything I'm doing because I'm not as much as X, Y, and Z. And you know what it did was momentarily for me, it threw me off my game and I said, ah, screw this consistent thing. I need to do something different so that I can be a billionaire tomorrow. I need that unicorn company so I can be rich, richer, richest. And what it did was it, I fell prey to it. So when you guys fall prey to it, understand that this is a universal thing that happens all the time. And one of the wonderful things about reading and about repetition and about family and about community and about coming here is that it gives us an opportunity when we fall off the truck to regroup and to rethink. And it, what it did for me was I talked to Gina and I knew I was going to come on this show. And I started thinking and I said, I need to take a step back. And when I step back, it's like what the Navy SEAL said, like what Robert said last week, you fall back to the level of your training. And I know y'all are tired of me saying the same stuff over and over, but you know what? That's my training. And I fell back to it and I went, wait a minute. Do I have what I need? Yes. Do I have what I want already? Absolutely. Do I realize that no matter what I get, whether I make a dollar or a billion dollars, if I look at whether there's someone who makes more money, will I ever be satisfied? No. And it allowed me to reset. And then it allowed me to say, I'm not going to change what I do day to day. I'm not going to stop that consistent thing because I know deep down that there are downs to get up. And this is one of my down times. So now I should practice what I preach, figure out, change my setting, go to sleep, go for a walk, work out, talk to a friend, talk to your spouse, talk to my community and reset and get back to what I know works consistently. And so that's just, I mean, I'm not anything special. I'm just saying that's what I did. And I think everybody can identify with that because we've all been through this thousands and thousands of times. We've all seen our significant others, our kids, our parents in COVID go through this over and over, right? How many of you, have consistently applied a regimen of working out or a diet or, and you feel like you're making progress. And then you see some person on Instagram, you're like, God damn it. 
I need to now stop eating completely and right. We all do it. And then if that knocks us off of our consistency, that's the real threat. The threat is not that I won't ever look as good or be as good as somebody else. The real threat is, is that when you see that, it knocks you off of what you really now know is the key to excellence and greatness in anything you do. Because, oh, now I need to stop doing what I'm doing and do some quick and easy pill, whatever. And you stop. Same with investing, right? Dollar cost averaging, you put in money every month, you buy an index fund, you know, and then you read, well, Tesla went up 5,000%. I'm going to sell all my shit and buy Tesla stock. Now, what you know and what you've done is the right way, right? But you get greedy, you get distracted, you get whatever, and then it throws you off your game. And I just, I, I appreciate the fact very much that I have a community that I have committed to, and it helped me be accountable. And it allowed me to step back. So thank you guys. And I'm here for you. You're here for me. And I appreciate it. But I wanted to tell you that because I think maybe, possibly some of y'all have been through the same thing I've been through. So um, next, no particular order. I do want to say I have uh, in the last week, had three different law firms um, that I've gone down and I've talked to and I've given actually kind of a litigation advice, pre-lit, lit, taking them through a whole thing of how to litigate, how to think about stuff. And there was something that I found that was consistent that I was talking about that, that people, it resonated with people. And I wanted to talk about that for just a minute. Okay. Now, we've talked about litigation and pre-lit strategies, and we've talked, I've given you booklets that I've written, and we've talked about what works and what doesn't. Everybody wants to know cause and effect. Like, if I make a demand a certain way, will it result in this? If I do this, will it? Re- but in addition to, if you file early, it does make people do things. If you file a notice of deposition of the defendant, it will make them pick up the file. What it also does is it affects the psychological part of the case. And I want to talk about that for a minute. I went to a firm on uh, this week, early this week, and I was looking through all pre-lip files. First case. And I just said, you know what? Pick out 30 cases. I'll help you go through them and I'll tell you what I think. And this is First case, defendant, you turns in front of the plaintiff. Geico denies liability. Next case, defendant runs a stop sign with an eyewitness saying the defendant runs a stop sign. Mercury, we accept 20% liability. Next. And they're like, what's going on? And I said, the insurance company has put you in a different in a category, right? And they put you in a category, rightfully or wrongfully, but probably rightfully, because they have said, if we fight and give comparative and fight liability, this firm will accept it most of the time. But that's not fair. It works. Now, understand that insurance companies 
are really good at big picture stuff. And they know that most people, most lawyers, most law firms, if they do one thing, are much more likely to do X, Y, and Z. It's like I say, you make your bed in the morning, you're probably the same type of person that make that writes their goals down. You're probably the same type of person that does whatever, gives money to homeless people, right? If you have a sloppy house, who cares? But that's probably an indicator of that person also has a sloppy car, doesn't have a schedule or whatever. I'm not being judgmental, but the insurance company has figured out and they put you in categories. And I want to talk about that for a minute. So not only does, if you ask for insurance limits and they don't give it to you, and then you don't file for a year, harmful to your clients, harmful to your time, that is an indicator to the insurance company to put you in a category that probably means let's wait them out, not give them money. They will settle before they have to hire experts. They will settle right before trial. So not only does it hurt specifically the case, it also is telegraphing to the insurance company that you're the type of lawyer and the type of firm that would rather settle, not spend money, not work. And so understand that if you have a case, the accident happens, and you get involved in the case a month later, and you haven't filed suit in a year, they're putting you in the bad category. Whether you deserve it or not, they will make you wait for two years to give you the money, and they'll try to lowball you the whole time, right? The same thing when they object to form interrogatories and don't give you the name or the insurance information or whatever, and you don't follow up. They put you in a different category, right? The same if you have filed a lawsuit right before the statute, and then you don't do any discovery for a year. They put you in that category. And so many times people say, well, Mike, why did you settle that case? It's because they put me in a different category. And I just want to remind people of, of something I've said before. I hired a guy early on in my practice. He was a defense lawyer. Great guy. Love him still. He's a defense lawyer now. Two guys my age, defense lawyers, two different uh, defendants. I settled with one, tried the case against the other, got a good verdict against the other one. And the guy I settled with, his firm went out of business. And he called me and asked me for a job. And I, and I hired him. And I said, as a condition, I need you to tell me what it's like to be a defense lawyer, how defense lawyers think, and how insurance companies think. And he told me. And he's now a great guy. I love him at Ford Walker. Wonderful dude. But this is what he told me. And if you've heard this, it's worth repeating. He said, Mike, especially as in-house counsel, but adjusters and in-house counsel in particular, but everybody, we rely on the fact that 90 to 95% of plaintiff's firms are, are just lazy, that are just bad, that won't do anything, right? I have stacks of cases. And if I don't have 90 to 95% of them not following up on my crappy discovery, not following up on... Um, me obstructing, you know, justice, uh, not sending me any discovery, not sending me a depot notice, not pushing me. If I don't have that, I can't function. But there's about five or 10% of firms 
for the plaintiff. Mike, you're one of them. You guys file if we don't give you the information. I don't want that. You guys follow up on my bullshit discovery. You're noticing depots. And he goes, I want to tell you what we do is we write letters about reserves, about the plaintiff being beautiful and amazing. And the verdict's going to be huge. We are trying to get as much money as we can to give to that five to 10% of firms to get them out of our lives or else we can't function. And he said, the trick is if you are in that five to 10%, that we will always give you money, always. And understand that the carriers have two categories. They got that five to 10 percenter, and then they got that 80 to 90 percenter. And so those of you who have noticed, well, man, I just, I demanded arbitration immediately and I gave them the arbitrator and then they paid me. Not only did that help that case, but that starts to put you in that right category. And then you will see as you do that on your cases, you're starting to settle a lot more cases with even less work, right? I remember when I, everybody's like, what's the key? You got to have money to fund your cases. I said, I did at the beginning, but I don't need money to fund my cases anymore because the carriers don't make me spend money anymore. Right? And the reason they don't is because they know I will spend the money. They don't want to spend the money. And a lot of times what they're doing is when they put you in that bad category, you wonder why they make you spend money, why they delay, why they're not nice to you, why they put you up, is because they know eventually you'll give up. Rightfully or wrongfully. And it's because of things like not filing until right before the statute, not following up on discovery. That may not really be you, but it doesn't matter because they think that's you and they will make you wait. So it's a win, win, win. When I say, give them all the records, give them the relevant records, give them the photographs, give them the form rog responses, give them that stuff. Because not only is that the information to settle that case, but then they put you in the category to settle future cases. Make sense? Does anybody, I wanted to stop there and say, if anybody has anything to say on that, any comments, any disagreements, and I'm certainly, you know, I've been wrong once or twice. I may be wrong here, but I don't think I am. But does anybody have anything they want to add to that? Yeah, Catherine. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I actually followed your advice about drafting a form interrogatory response even before, uh, during pre-lit. And so I had that done. And after we filed the complaint, the defendant served me with um, with discovery requests. The same day that they uh, emailed it to me, I responded with my form interrogatory responses already. And quite honestly, that felt good. And, and I just said, hey, here's your, your form interrogatory responses. And my responses to your request for production of document will come. I'll serve it to you shortly. Um, I just need the verification from my client. And then it was done. And uh, it was off my plate so easily. Uh, discovery responses used to take a long time, but now it's done. And then the, um, the, the lawyer emailed me, my co-counsel uh, for that case emailed me and said, oh my gosh, you're so on top of it. And I'm thinking, you know, I had a good mentor. <laughs> so thank you. You know what? I'm not a great mentor. I appreciate that. I, I mean, I'm happy to mentor, but I tell you what the difference is, is that this information is not new. 
right? You just listened. You just actually, you just executed. And I know we've talked about that. And I do repeat that, you know, I remember Elmer Lowe was a president of Cala in the early 60s. He wrote a book on personal injury practice in 63, and I bought it. And I think I may have said this. That was what, 60 years ago? 90% of it is applicable and almost identical to the stuff I wrote in my book 60 years later. And a lot of the stuff that I've been saying, you've heard if you listen to Tony Robbins, you've heard if you listen to X, Y, and Z, the difference is whether you execute on it. And I know that I keep talking about that. And, and, you know, Harrison, who's here, I spoke to your law school class, right? And you remember uh, this week, and I said, you got X number of people, less than 10% of y'all will respond to me and actually take me up on it. It's at 3% right now. Now, everybody who heard has heard it before, agrees with it, whatever, and execution is the difference. So kudos to you, Catherine. So, um, so I want everybody to do an exercise, okay? If you have your phone handy, I want you to do something for me. Pull out the calculator on your phone, okay? Go to the calculator. Type in 83, <clears throat> subtract your age, and times it by 365. If you live to 83 years old on average, that is the number of days you have left. Now, take a look at it. Got 11,000 days for me. I have talked about this. I have done it myself. And you guys are doing one of probably two things. You're probably going, holy crap, I do not want to know that. I only have that much left to live, right? Don't tell me that. I don't want to think about it. But some people go, what am I going to do for the next 11,000 days? And I do this because if you think about whatever your number is, how many times have we been polite to someone who's wasted our entire day, right? And you don't want to be rude or a client that really doesn't have a case, but you hold on to it for a month or month or two, just because you don't know what to do, because you don't want to execute. How many times have we stayed up late at night worrying about that conversation that we have to have with that defense counsel that we put off because we don't want to execute? And now I don't have 11,315 days left to live. I got 11,002 days left to live. And what I've done is through my choices of inactivity, of not executing, 
I let someone up take away a day of my life. And when I look at it like this, that day is pretty damn precious. Right? Now, I'm not suggesting that you don't, that you, you know, you, you move to Tahiti and stop working and like live whatever, right? <laughs> a day of hard work is, is good. But what I'm saying is, is one of the things that you can get from this is you can say, you know, oh, I can't go on that trip because I got to do some extra work. But you know what? If I said you got to go on that trip to go collect your $250,000 lottery ticket, you'd figure out how to go do it. Right? And so I only put this out there because what it's done for me is if I can decisively and responsibly, responsibly choose to live my life the way I want to, as opposed to the way I feel like the life is making me, I find that I'm more joyful and happier. And so, like I said, nobody ever on their deathbed said, I'm really glad I worked as much as I did. No one has a hearse with a U-Haul on the back of it. And so I hope that you will use this in a, in a way, whatever way that ultimately says, you know what? I'm going to take a step back because I only got 11,000 days left and I'm going to enjoy my family. I'm going to enjoy this trip. I'm going to enjoy my career. I'm going to look at the blessings that I have. I'm going to understand that, that what's going on in my life is something that's within my control and that's a blessing, right? And I'm going to build from there. So take a look at it. Like I said, I know about half of y'all are going, oh, shit. And the other half of y'all are going, oh, I get it. It's cool. Right? So um, that leads me to another thing that I was talking about with a couple of these law firms. And um, I was talking, I don't know if Ashley's on the, on the call. Is Ashley on here? Ashley, I'm here. Yeah. Hey, and as you and I were talking about goal setting and Tony Robbins, right? Mm -hmm. And I would love to hear from you and your perspective of how important you think goal setting is. And in fact, you pulled out a notebook when we saw each other and had it right there. Mm -hmm. And when you got your goals, you carry them around. I got mine. I came around and let's talk about that for just a minute. So, um, Tony Robbins was, and I'll give a little story in a minute, but Tony Robbins was a game changer for me in terms of writing down my goals. But Ashley, how do you use your goals? How do you write them down? What do you do? So I don't really know where it came from. I've just always been very like OCD, very type A. Um, I have a really good memory. And so one of the reasons I think I have a good memory is in school, I would write all my notes down time and time again. Not only did it help me perfect my handwriting, but it also instilled everything that I wrote, like second nature into my brain. So I've just always been a goal-oriented person. I don't think you can see the vision in the future if you don't write it down and take positive action steps. So I have them in my phone, but I also have like this book. And on the front, it literally says 2020 goals. And it has like everything I want to do personally, professionally, like family with like you know, money situations, like investments, and I just write everything down. And then um, the other day, even with everything going on with COVID, it's 
okay, fourth quarter. So I was like, okay, I want to nail down my fourth quarter goals. So I took out a notepad. And I'm like, okay. And I started going through and I'm like, okay, what have I reached so far this year? And it's, it feels so good to check things off. And so I'm like checking things that I've already hit down and I'm like, okay, what can I do from October 1st until the end of the year to hit these goals? And I've already started writing my plan for 2021. So I think that in order to succeed it, you have to first have a vision. Um, and then, you know, everybody might have it in the mind, but there's something that's really powerful about actually putting a pen to paper and writing it down. I think that's so great. And I think you hit on a bunch of things that let's talk about for a minute. So when you talk about fourth quarter goals, there is a whole book, a whole organization strategy called the 12 week work year. And I utilize that too. And what it says is that for most people, they do goals on a yearly basis, right? And they have companies do it on a yearly basis, my annual outlook. And they find that the annual outlook usually starts and is done in January or December for starting in January. And that November and December are overwhelmingly the most productive months. Because in October, they realize they haven't done very much, and then they get on the stick and they finish in November and December. And what Ashley said was my fourth quarter goals. And what I have found is a very effective thing. And it's a, I mean, it's not new, there's a whole book series is that if you cut your year up into four three month increments, there's a lot of benefits to that. The biggest one is that. It's a lot easier to plan and project for the next three months than it is the next 12 months. And so one, your goals are a lot more a lot more achievable because they're much sooner and more um, you can understand them and identify them easier. So what it does is I saw, like you say, I want to get, I want to buy 12 new properties a year. And what happens is most people in October realize they purchased one and then they buy a bunch, try to get it right. Instead, if you say, I want to buy three properties every three months, you are much more likely to execute on that over each quarter. And so when we talk about goals, one of the things you can do is whatever your goals are, annual, five-year, 10-year why don't you also think about making a three-month goal, three-month goals, and then you will reevaluate them at the end of three months. And you'll be surprised at how much more focused and more direction you can have. And so I want to take a step back because, Ash, you, you really, you, you reminded me of this when you pulled out your notebook. And I'm like, I got one of those. And I want to talk quickly about goals. So when I was uh, jobless, no, I wasn't jobless. I was working for a mentor and I was like at the end of my thing and I was like miserable. Um, he was a wonderful mentor and he taught me everything I know. But at some point I felt like I knew everything I needed to know. And I was like, oh, and he didn't like me either. You know, I was like, Phew. so I'm two in the morning. I'm sitting up watching uh, Bonanza reruns or something like that. And sure enough, Tony Robbins uh, infomercial comes on for, uh, 30 CDs in 30 days, change your life. Listen for 30 minutes, 35 minutes every day. So I bought it because I was like, I don't know what I want to do. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm kind of miserable. I'm kind of 
down in the dumps. And in addition to all of the Tony Robbins stuff about, you know, rah, rah, and it's wonderful. And I even remember that, that, that song, right. One week was goal setting. And it's something I would highly recommend to you if you haven't done it. And the first thing he said was the research is very, very clear that you are 80% more likely to accomplish your goals if you write them down. Clearly. And now I realize why that's the case. And that's because when you write down your goals, they become guideposts for you. Because we all get involved in our daily lives, our weekly lives, our monthly lives, our yearly lives. And does this sound familiar? Ah, got to get up, get my coffee, get the kids dressed, go to school, go to work, do my discovery. Got to answer this stuff. I'm exhausted. Go to bed, wake up the next morning. Kids go to work. Da, da, da. Weekend. Oh, I can't look at that. I got to relax. Then the next week and the next month and we get into a rut. What written goals act as is a guidepost. So if you have yearly goals that you look at once a week, once every two weeks, it is a reminder to kind of step out of your daily life and say, oh, yeah. And many times it is the impetus that we need to take a step towards our goals. Okay. So what he did, and for me, what I'd recommend, if you haven't written your goals yet, it's there's a couple of pretty simple steps. Spend about 30 to 45 seconds and just write down if there are money, Time, distance, you could teleport, you had unlimited money, unlimited, you know, conscience, you were omnipotent. For 30 to 45 seconds, write down as much. I want to be king of the universe. I want to be da-da-da. I want a plane, train, car, da, right? President, I don't want flies on my head, whatever it is, right? Now, take that list. And legit cross out stuff that you realize for you is never going to happen, right? I'm never going to be king of the universe, right? I'm not going to, or stuff that you clearly don't want in any way. What you have left, now you put into one, three, five, and 10-year goals. And then it's important that you understand the following things. They can change at any time. You can cross stuff out and you can add stuff. You do not, when you go through this process, have to create the rest of your life and make these decisions on what you're going to do and what is success and what's not success for the rest of your life. Okay. But what it will give you is a very interesting outlook. And then the second thing that I learned from this week is I was talking about goals with Ashley. And I was talking about goals with a young uh, male right out of law school. And it's interesting because my goals are more like Ashley's now. And when I was that kid's age, my goals were more like his. And it's particularly true, I think, for men, sometimes more than women, sometimes as a young person. His goals were all money-based completely. Everything. So was mine, right? What's your goals? You want to be a good person? Screw that. I want a Ferrari. <laughs> right? 
So when I was in my 30s, what was my, I want to make a billion dollars a year. I want to have houses out the wazoo. I want to have a plane, a train, a car. Here's my goals right now. I'm going to tell you all some of them. Because I believe that now you can have goals on what you want to have goals on what you want to do and goals on who you want to be. Right. And so my goals now, as I've continued to write them down, and by the way, I've kept my goals over the years and it's interesting what, as I look back, like for example, here's my goals in March of 2015. I want to learn how to speak Spanish. <laughs> I want to own a farm. I'm in escrow right now, five years later. Um, I wanted to write a book. I just started two months ago. Uh, I want to own more than one restaurant. We're opening our second one this weekend. Now, that took five years. The rest of the stuff <laughs> I've crossed off. But then I look and I see that those couple things have been repeated every year. And the only difference really for most of those was I met an amazing woman who said, you preach about execution so much, execute boy. Why don't you do it? And I did. You know what I realized? I could have probably done that four years ago, five, five years ago, three years ago, two years ago. It was only up to me. And that's interesting. And I say that to all the law students, Harrison, when I said this the other night to everybody here, anything on your list, if you really want it, the universe will help you get it. But it is up to you to execute about it. So now I have goals where it used to be real estate, money, car. I want to speak Spanish so I can make more money. Now I have, what do I want? Money, different things, a plane, or this. What do I want to do? I want to create a charity. I want to have a second law firm. But then importantly, now that's added is what do I want to be? I want to be a great father. I want to be a great husband. I want to be a great friend. I want to be a great mentor. And that is simply for me a maturation process. But what it does is something I now have that I can look at routinely that when I get like I was yesterday, last night, or this morning where I'm kind of spinning, this also helps you reorient yourself. And is it any wonder that Ashley carries around with her all the time? This thing never leaves my side. I lost it one time about six years ago. I thought my life was over. Why is this? But Mike, look, it's really ugly. Good God. It's so ugly because I never can't find it, right? I don't mistake in this for a court file. It's ugly on purpose. It used to be like bright purple because I always wanted to make sure that I saw it and grabbed it. Make sense? So I would ask you, if you haven't written your goals, to take that exercise. And just do it. It'll take you five minutes. It will be some of the best five minutes that you have ever spent. I promise you.
If you have written your goals, kudos, take a look at them again, but now look at them with a, with a different outlook of, do I really want this? And it is not a problem to cross off or to add to my goals. Okay. And that's the thing. When a lot of people, when they do this, go, I feel like I have to map out the rest of my life. You do not. And that is the biggest excuse or reason why people don't write down their goals because they don't want to commit to anything. Well, take another look at the number on your phone and then make a decision. God, I hate when Mike preaches at me and I don't mean to preach. And Harrison, I got a sense that some of y'all, your classmates were not thrilled about what I was saying the other night. But I said it anyway, because it is reality. And, and at some point, that number will be more meaningful to you. And it's now meaningful for me. And I'm just trying to spread the information and the wealth. So we'll take a break on that and see if anybody has any comments. So Ashley, thank you for all that. Kate, you, you talked about a full focus planner. You just got one and you love it. What is that? Hey, hello? Yeah, hey, Kate. Yes, hey, sorry, having technical malfunction here. So you said you bought an actual focus planner and you use that? Yeah, I will show it to you as a life-changing item for me. Sorry. Sorry, my office got invaded. Um, okay, so here's, uh, let me switch camera. What is it? So, okay, so it's a planner. It's a quarterly planner. Sorry, my client's car is in the parking lot. Uh, okay, so it looks like this. It's, can you see it? Yeah. Okay, so it's a little book. It's quarterly, and it has all the things that you talked about. So you set your quarterly goals. You go through it. You go your ideal week. You write down your daily rituals, work shutdown, morning ritual. And then you do every day, you do what's called a, sorry, your top three, right? So the three things you do, so your day is not a waste. You have your daily appointments, other tasks, notes that, you know, I take notes. I have meetings with people. I take notes. I scribble the ideas. And uh, it's a life changer for me. That's awesome. Yeah, so I highly recommend everybody to get one. I do how not know. You, how long have you been using it? Um, for about three weeks now. Okay. And I already subscribed for the next year. So you subscribe it and they send you one every quarter. If you buy like three, they send you one for free. Right. So how many people seeing that said, oh, I'm going to order that. And when I get it two weeks from now, I'll start. Oh, no, 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 no pads come in. <laughs> right. And so if you do that, what it does for you, Kate, it's giving you the organization and it's a motivator. So you go to it and kudos, it's going to be great for you. I mean, it's yes. great. And I'll say that you don't need that. But if that's what helps you, then it's great. What and and Ashley, you have like a spiral bound small notebook, right? Yeah, I have like one of these little uh, notebooks. It's like brown leather, so it can kind of be thrown in any purse. And um, 
the cover says like a Bible verse and I like it because on the bottom of every page, it actually has a verse. And so sometimes it's kind of ironic when you go to write something down and then you glance below and you're like, oh, wait, I can do everything. And so it's, it's a nice reminder and it's some great um, reminding of, you know, why I believe I'm, I'm created to help people. And so it's been really helpful for me and I'm going to do what you do now and actually use this one for years to come and then look back. And that's it, wonderful. And it's really different strokes for different folks, right? I have tried all that and it didn't work for me because it was, it looked like other books and I never would find it or whatever. So mine has been for years, a three ring binder with 99 cent by a thousand sheets of lined paper. I have a to-do. I too love to check shit off. Right? Um, I, I have a projects section, which I think I've mentioned in the past, are projects that take more than one to do. So like, for example, we have um, this, this book that Gina and I are writing. That's on my project list. It's also on my goal list. But that project may take a whole bunch of steps. So on my to-do list, I will have the next couple steps that I want to do towards writing that book or um, building a deck outside the house, right? On my to-do list, it's call the contractor, get a deck person out here, get the structural engineer out here. And then I have my goals. And now I have, like I said, have, do, and be goals. But before, Ferrari, Lamborghini. Different strokes for different folks. Part of the reason that that I like the uh, loose leaf for me is because I cross shit out all the time and I throw stuff away and rewrite it all the time. And I actually change my goals on a regular basis, or at least I thought I did. But when I look back, I see some stuff, a lot of stuff that I've accomplished since COVID has been on my list for year after year after year after year. And it is not lost on me that I am highly motivated and I can execute better now as the happiest I've ever been in my life. Right. It's not lost on me. So last thing, um, Mary Caruso, who I don't know if she's on here, my lawyer extraordinaire, right. Sent me something I think all of us should know about on, we are actually going to talk about law. We got a discovery response from a defense and they had a, um, it was like, Mary, I don't know if you're on here. It was like all statements, all investigation, all surveillance that you've done on the plaintiff. And they told us about something and then they withheld it as a work product doctrine. And it was called the research from ISG value. And I want to show you all what it is. And we believe that this is something that the insurance companies now are using universally similar to the ISO searches that they've been using forever. And what ISO was, if any person makes a claim, whether it's a lawsuit or not, the insurance industry has a centralized database across companies so that they can find out past claims. 
whether it's a, a claim, a lawsuit or not. And we at our firm actually run ISOs on our own clients because many times people don't remember they made a claim. I mean, do you remember if you're in your 40s or 50s, if you were in an accident in your 20s, did you ever, did you actually make a claim for your property damage or a lot of people don't remember. And so the ISO is available to us too. And there's like a subscription and I'm happy if you guys want to know what that is, we can send you what we've got. Um, thank you, Brianna, for the full focus store in the chat. If you look in your chat, there's a way to um, order that. But I'm actually going to type into chat the isgvalue.com. And if you want to look at that, but I want to show you, I looked it up. Here's what it says. First look. ISG introduces the most powerful social media investigative tool at your disposal, revolutionizing the investigative industry of insurance by utilizing cost-effective deep web research for better surveillance, provides an amazing amount of data on your subjects. It's national in scope. It's undetectable, no friending of subjects. Using first look, such as Facebook and Instagram and whatever, gets you pictures and videos of the subject engaging in physical activity, evidence of secondary income through e-commerce activity, future events and activity plans that they do so you can set up surveillance in the future. A comprehensive social media investigation. Then there's First Look Plus that adds criminal database. And then a first look pro, and then a first look monitor. Take a look at this. So we know this is a big firm, and they did this on our client. They told us they did it, but they withheld the results. But what does this mean? This, again, it, it highlights the fact that your client's social media better be, certainly from the time they get hurt, don't post anything more if you can help it. And remember, it is a spoilation of evidence. If you tell your clients to delete their social media, you can't do that. That's not legal. It is not legal. In fact, there was a case about 10, 12 years ago, I think the, the one in Florida, where the plaintiff's lawyers got sanctioned $500,000 for telling their clients to, to get rid of their social media and delete it. And by the way, you can't delete it anyway. Once it's on the internet, your life is over. So... Having said that, we got about five more minutes. If anybody has anything they want to add, if not, we'll end five minutes early. I know today was kind of scattered. It was some stuff that's kind of, you know, hey, I wasn't on my game that much this morning, but I'm back. Gina, I see you on here. I love you. I'll see you in a minute. Okay, guys, have a good weekend. Thanks, Mike. All right. Thanks, Mike.